Hello, welcome to Converging Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonilla. On this episode, I'm very happy to bring the conversation I had with Jacob Mikanowski. Jacob is a freelance journalist and writer. Uh, he's spent much of his time on the history of Eastern Europe academically. He also uh, writes in many, many outlets, such as The Atlantic, uh, The New York Times, New Yorker, Chronicle of Higher Ed, and many other places. He is the author of the latest book, Goodbye Eastern Europe, An Intimate History of a Divided Land, which looks at pretty much everything in terms of Eastern Europe, uh, culture, politics, religion, ideology, um, over the past uh, 2,000 years. So it's, it's wide-spanning. It's not a big book. Uh, it's actually a pretty good size. And the, one of the, the thing that I like about the book so much is it doesn't read like a standard typical history book with a lot of you know this happened this happened dates places people it's really trying to get at the big themes of what ties eastern europe together and and he does just such a powerful job you can tell it's not only well researched but it's so well integrated and synthesized and you can tell he's uh, obviously spent time there and 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 has obviously uh, been thinking about many of these things for for quite some time we talk about why Eastern Europe is is forgotten. Um, most people, they think of Western Europe and, and maybe Russia, and, and then they go to the, the Mideast and Asia, but Eastern Europe gets forgotten, and we talk about that. We talk about how we define Eastern Europe, so what's the kind of boundaries of, of what this is and isn't. Uh, we talk about the Slavs, as you know, Slavic uh, peoples are, are huge in Eastern Europe, and how they maybe originate from Romania. We talk about that theory. We talk about Ashkenazi Jews in Eastern Europe. We talk about paganism, Christianity, Judaism, um, and how they kind of coexisted together. We talk about Muslim-majority countries in Eastern Europe, tremendous impact of the Ottoman Empire. We talk about the almost empire of Poland-Lithuania. We talk about Transylvania. And we talk about how uh, language and nationalism are are connected in a strange way. We obviously talk about Eastern Europe in a modernized uh, 20th century uh, we talk about World War II and, and concentration camps all over Europe, uh, the role of communism in the late 20th century and into a more modern time with capitalism and how that has uh, situated itself, and, and many, many other topics. Um, this was, again, really a, a great conversation, and, and that's really what it feels like, is we we got on well together and it really just conversing about many different things and you know his 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 passion for eastern europe kind of rubbed off on me in the conversation and i was you know also excited to to you know kind of pick and pull at certain things and it, it was just it was just really a great lively conversation and he's he's uh, absolutely fantastic um as always you can uh, find this conversation all the conversations at uh, converging dialogues at substack.com so get over there and subscribe and uh, tell everyone that you know, and um, also on YouTube, and you can uh, get over there at Converging Dialogues. And so, now I bring you Jacob Mikanowski. I'm here here with Jacob Mikanowski. Uh, Jacob, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I'm uh, greatly looking forward to uh, to talking with you. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, yeah, of course. Here. Yeah. So you have written a. A uh, fantastic book. It's called Goodbye Eastern Europe, An Intimate History of a Divided Land. And as I was telling you before we, we got on here, uh, I feel like a, uh, people know a handful of things about Eastern Europe, but not really 
uh, a lot of the history, which is unfortunate, actually. It's it's very diverse. It's very fascinating. I think Western Europe kind of gets a lot of the uh, fanfare a lot of the times, a lot of the history. So it was really nice. And, and the way you organize it, a lot of narrative accounts, it was uh, it's just fantastic. So I, I, uh, I'm really excited to talk to you about it. Uh, before we get into it, uh, why don't you tell folks who you are? Uh, what your background is kind of professionally or and or academically and uh, what you're uh, what you're currently doing. Sure. Um, my name is Jacob Mikanowski. By training, I'm a historian. I uh, did my grad work at UC Berkeley in uh, Polish history mostly. Started off in Soviet and then did Polish history, finishing my doctorate now. And then I also uh, worked as a, still work as a freelance journalist working for, uh, written for Harper's, New York Times, The Guardian. I do a lot of stuff for The Guardian. And uh, so it's a straddle that divide between uh, academic history, popular history, and also writing journalism about how history gets used in the present in politics. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, that that has to be. I'm sure we'll get 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 to it at some point. But that has to be pretty frustrating. <laughs> I feel like people a lot of the times will look at historical accounts and then look at the front page newspaper and. And they'll say, see, it's happening all over again. It's like, well, maybe, maybe not, though. Maybe, maybe it's a little bit more nuanced here. But um, that's great, though. I think I've, I know a few people that do that. They'll be kind of a foot in the academic world, and they'll kind of talk to and write for academics. And then uh, they're also doing kind of more popular history or doing kind of essay pieces. And what I've heard is that it keeps you kind of balanced from being too, like, you know, myopic in one way of doing things. Do you feel that that's a, a good balance for you to kind of be in both worlds? It is, because the academic side gets you, gives you kind of the, uh, the latest research. I feel like I'm up to date on, pretty up to date on what's happening, and, and history is always evolving. It's always like mm-hmm. changing. New things are actually being discovered, and especially in Eastern Europe, where archives really opened up in the 90s. So it's actually a very dynamic field. Sure. But doing the kind of writing I do, I can be, hopefully reach a bigger audience, right? Mm-hmm. Make that something that's uh, consumable by the, the lay person, by the average reader. Because I think it really is important. It's such an interest and so interesting. I just think mm-hmm. Eastern Europe is such a fascinating place. There's mm-hmm. so many good stories that are so neglected. And so with this book, I'm really trying to like get out of that academic mm-hmm. bubble mm-hmm. and talk to. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it certainly feels that way. I mean, when I read the book, it didn't feel you know, kind of stale or, you know, dense or it felt, it felt really, really uh, accessible. Um, it's always hard for me because I, I read a lot of history stuff and I talk to a lot of historians. So I'm always kind of uh, in a weird space with that kind of stuff, but um, it didn't, it felt, it was well-written and, and it felt uh, pretty, pretty uh, relatable in a lot of ways. So, which is great. Um, <clears throat> so, okay. So Eastern Europe, um, I will, we'll kind of talk about definitions in in, in a minute, but I guess uh, kind of what, how you started with the book is what is it about Eastern Europe that feels forgotten or it's less emphasized in a lot of historical accounts or is, is that kind of the in the shadow of of so-called Western Europe uh, and much of their history or why why is it kind of just kind of get uh, glossed over a little bit? You think? I think it's glossed over twice over almost because in the shadow of Western Europe and people have a kind of people might not have a great you know, deep understanding of Western European history, but they have landmarks. They have like key, they kind of know where things are and they have like key things to hang their attention on. They, you know, they know who Napoleon is, they know the French Revolution, they've got mm. Bismarck, the Nazi regime, and Russia on the other side too. So mm. Russia, um, 
is on the east side of Europe. But when I'm talking about Eastern Europe, I'm really talking about the lands in between, lands mm-hmm. in between the major power, European powers historically, between the Germany or the German lands and between Russia. Because Russia also has that long history of independence and authoritarian rule. And you have those personalities that people can identify. Stalin, Lenin, going back, Catherine the Great, Peter the Great, that has a kind of tether of familiarity and of narrative that a lot of Eastern Europe lacks. I've seen people kind of fill out maps from memory. I used to do this as a teacher, you know, like <laughs> a little like fill-in map. People, you know, like like first day European history. Mm-hmm. And they get Italy because of this distinctive shape. They get France, they get UK, Germany usually. And then it's like, question mark, question mark, <laughs> Poland, question mark. You know, that that the arrest of it really drops off. Right. Um, I remember the first Ukraine war started in 2014. I had students in international relations taking history classes and like, you just know where you, and like did a test and they were putting Ukraine where Belgium is. They weren't sure where Ukraine was. Oh no. <laughs> because it is, it is a lot less familiar. There's a lot less mm-hmm. of that familiarity, a lot less of that tethering people, a lot less travel or mm-hmm. there was, I think it's changing, mm-hmm. but a lot less mm-hmm. contact. So it is a kind of grayer territory in people's minds. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also wonder if there's also some, uh, maybe some difficulty, because there was a lot of things that changed in Eastern Europe after, you know, kind of the the early 90s. Um, Obviously, things like in Serbia, um, there's a lot of these certain countries, obviously, uh, Czech Republic, obviously, there's, they kind of broke off, and then they became all these other separate countries. So some people, older folks might have one understanding of Europe and and then now it's it's a little bit different, but yeah, but most people aren't going to know where uh, Moldova is on a map. <laughs> um, Unfortunately, because actually, right now, you know, that's kind of been, it's been a punchline for a long time. It's like, oh, Moldova, Albania. Those are <laughs> crucial. Moldova might be like the linchpin mm-hmm. of European diplomacy right now. Mm-hmm. It's, it's so because of its position between Romania and, and uh, yeah, with that you with the next to next to the EU, next to Ukraine, but with the Russian enclave. That's the powder keg of Europe, and people do not know where it is. People do mm-hmm. not know what it is. Mm-hmm. So it actually is like, mm-hmm. like the way Bosnia was before World War One. It's like mm-hmm. who knows mm-hmm. anything about Bosnia? So well, that's actually going to be the most important place <laughs> in the world for the next yeah. four years. So it might be mm-hmm. worth paying attention to. Yeah. So, so, so you kind of got a little bit over there. So when we talk about Eastern Europe, uh, what what do we mean, or what do you mean when you talk about it in the book, and and how I guess. There's what the rest of the world thinks of Eastern Europe or how they define that. But how do folks from that region usually think of themselves geographically? So if I talk to somebody from Belarus or Georgia or Latvia or Moldova or wherever, how do they find themselves kind of in that region? And is it more uh, identified kind of with ethnicity or and or faith or is it more you know nation states how do they see it so kind of how does the world see eastern europe how is it you know, defined in limits and then how do kind of folks from eastern europe uh, regions and countries see themselves you know and how they uh, align very different very much split vision and eastern europe i kind of talk about it as a, as a collection of shared affinity it's not a single identity because people rarely identify as eastern europeans it's too kind of a vague it's like they identify as a north american like people don't really do that we're not like oh yeah north americans you know we're like western hemispheres it's like well <laughs> you identify as that you know eastern europe is that kind of like it's a it's too big of a basket mm-hmm. for the people inside of it mm-hmm. um and depending on where you are in eastern europe people identify people mostly identify with the country they're from mm-hmm. with the the nation they're now Historically, that was not true. 
historically, it would have been usually would have been faith in the religion. But since the late 19th century, since the 20th century, people will say the country they're from, they identify as Poles, as Latvians, as Serbians, as um, Yugoslavs once upon a time, but not anymore. Only And only part of Yugoslavs. Mm-hmm. Um, and outside Eastern Europe, that's something that, like, so in, when people from this kind of big, say, amorphous geographic region go to Western Europe or go to Australia or go to North America, then they become Eastern Europeans. And people are like, oh, you're from that, that zone, that kind of area that is less developed, had communism, you know, has, has a couple labels attached to it. Mm-hmm. Um, not always completely consistent in what those labels are, but there are some things that repeat mm-hmm. uh, the idea that it's, that's less developed or, or poor, which is changing, honestly. Mm-hmm. The idea that it was post-socialist, that's also like fading into the past. Mm-hmm. And now countries kind of regionally push the level of like countries as level of governments are trying their best to disassociate from Eastern Europe because it's seen as a stigma. It's mm-hmm. seen... And politically, it kind of puts you on the east, on the Russian side of things. So people very much want to be in some way closer to the EU, usually. Um, countries in the Baltics have very aggressively rebranded themselves as parts of the Nordic zone. Mm-hmm. Estonia, actually, they kind of speak something very close to Finnish. Mm-hmm. But Lithuania and Latvia also, they're like, we're actually Nordic countries. We're on the Baltic. We're Nordic countries with kind of like the other part of Scandinavia, mm-hmm. um, which is... They have a lot of Swedish investment, but it's a little, a little bit of a stretch. Yeah, that's interesting. Poland, yeah, Czech, Czech Republic, Slovakia, Hungary, they're like, we're Central Europe. We're very much Central Europe. And there is a sense, Central Europe also has a kind of historical, has some consistency there, but that kind of push pulls it into the German, Germany, Switzerland, Austria, those are all Central Europe. And the Balkans, it goes in different ways. Belarus, Ukraine, Moldova, those are countries that kind of have no choice but to say, well, we're Eastern Europe. Mm-hmm. Where else? would they be but they're like we're the least for europe depending on who you talk to where does i guess um again we'll, i'm sure we'll, we'll come to religion and ethnicities uh, at some point but i guess where do we find i guess these kind of eurasian types of countries now that are part of the former soviet union um but i'm thinking of you know tajikistan uzbekistan azerbaijan you know because this is kind of closer to armenia mm-hmm. um you know how do is that more, this is kind of like the former step or whatever, right? Is this more seen as like Asia or is there some of that as well that is uh, kind of seen as Eastern Europe as well? Or is it like everything, at, you know, east of the Black Sea is more Asian and, you know, everything outside of that above it or whatever is seen more as Eastern Europe? Or is that is that getting too complicated? Again, it depends where you are and who you ask. There is the, the kind of the question of all the post-Soviet states. And Russia, as a post as a big mm-hmm. post-Soviet country, has tried itself to re- rebrand as Eurasian, not mm-hmm. Eastern European. Mm-hmm. Not European, but Eurasian, that it straddles two continents and that straddles civilizations, that it's some kind of in between mm-hmm. East and West. And and some of that has to do with an idea that they that democracy isn't isn't the right system for this mm. country that really is in some ways closer to China or Mong- Mongol roots mm. and that the system they have is is suited to them. So there's a propaganda element to it. And then so Central Europe, Central Asian countries that are aligned with Russia will kind of fit into that. The Caucasus is the place where it gets 
complicated. Mm-hmm. Well, Georgia will very much be like, well, you're, sometimes it'll be like, well, you're European. But that depends on where Azerbaijan, much less so, mm-hmm. except in, for soccer reasons, when they want to host the Euro, Europa League, they're like, we're in Europe. <laughs> Promote Azerbaijan, like, it's like soccer diplomacy. All of a sudden, you're like, oh, yeah, Baku, capital. Uh, yeah, they got the, soccer, the, uh, yeah, they got the F1 race over there. They're European. Yeah, the, so there's, there's like a carve <laughs> out for sports diplomacy. Um, yeah. <laughs> and Armenia is quite complicated. But for my purposes, the Caucasus is off, off to the side. Um, yeah. It is it, in the biggest sense. Well, I'm talking about Eastern Europe, I'm really talking about kind of a narrow, more narrow zone. It kind of mm-hmm. goes from Estonia to Albania, the kind of mm-hmm. in between your kind of Italy, Germany quarter and your Black Sea, St. Petersburg quarter, that, that wedge of stuff that I think is historically and socially mm-hmm. distinct and unique. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So you, you're talking about in the book, you talk about, this is interesting, uh, you talk about the, the Slavs uh, and their kind of origins, and you, you speculate that it's likely that Romania, the current day Romania, I guess, could be the origin of the Slavs. Uh, how? Tell us about that, and, and, and how, is that something that they claim, or is that something that they'd be upset with you saying, or what are historians saying, or <laughs> what's the that, kind of uh, party line there? This is such a can of worms. This is the kind of thing that does not keep, this keeps me up at night. This has fascinated me for a long time as, as a Slav or half Slav. And um, <laughs> it, is, it is a great historical riddle. It's like there are, a, you look at Eastern Europe, there are a lot of Slavs there. It's not all Slavs. There's just a ton, a ton of Europe is Slavic. So, so Russia, Belarus, Ukraine, Poland, Czech, former Czechoslovakia, former Yugoslavia, the Albanian part, Bulgaria, all Slavic speaking. But his, and actually, in the past, East Germany was mostly Slavic speaking. So you see, it even be bigger than it is now. But where do they come from? Is it sorry? When we talk yep. about the Slavs again, I'm sure this is part of the, mm-hmm. the issue. Is it the language that connects them? Is it a history that connects them? Is it uh, ethnic cultural things like? And I'm I'm sure there's ten different definitions of that. Of like, well, you're really Slav, but I'm really not, or whatever. You're really not. How do we typically understand what it what that means? I guess. That's actually pretty pretty simple. It's, it's basically language. Okay. It's, it's a, all those languages are pretty related and quite closely related, like the Germanic languages or even like the Romance, like the way there's not that much difference between Spanish, French, Italian, right. all clearly derived from Latin, all related. You can kind of, if you know one. Yeah. You feel your way you out kinda, with another one. Yeah, you, you can figure out. out the rest. Yeah. Slavic's the same way. They're all pretty close. So I know Polish. I learned, I took Russian in college. And that means I can, I can read Czech and Slovak pretty pretty well. I pretty, Slovaks think they know Polish. I've had some like funny encounters in restaurants where we both think we understand each other's language, and in the end, I'm like, <laughs> we we don't have this a hundred percent, but you think there's mutual intelligibility, and all through that region, even though they're different alphabets, the actual language, the grammar, the the vocabulary, similar with with some branching. So mm-hmm. Ukrainians turn like. G's into H, you know, they're, they're vouchers, but they're closely related languages. And the big exceptions are Hungarian is not at all Slavic. It's not related. Hmm. And Romanian is Roma, Romance. Yeah, I was Roma- going to say, well, that's what was so fascinating about reading this. It was like, well, wait a minute. You think it's in Romania? Granted, the history, and I'm sure there's some kind yeah. of uh, 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 takeovers there in some parts, but Romania is the, the Romance language. That's, that's, 
it's, it's interesting because this is like one of the five Latin based ones, but it, and, and when you hear it, you're like, oh, I can, there's something there of French, Spanish, but then there's other aspects of it that don't feel quite that way. So Slavs potentially maybe being from Romania, but the language is the thing that's distinct and Romanian mm-hmm. currently is romantic. Seems almost like a, a, a contradiction. It's so interesting. It, it's, it's strange. It's actually a, a theory proposed by a Romanian historian, a pretty prominent one named Florin Curta at University of Florida. And the idea is that in the early Middle Ages, or the first time the Slavs appear, people called variations of Slavic, appear in the historical record, but then people notice them and write down, write something down about them, mm. is, in, is in the 6th century in the time of Byzantine Emperor Justinian and, and right after. And that was stuff that was happening on the edges of the East Roman Empire, on the edges of Byzantium, the north edge of which is the boundary between the, on the Danube, where Romania meets Bulgaria. Mm-hmm. And that there was this very militarized frontier, but there was a lot of soldiers, a lot of investment, a lot of recruiting barbarians from one side to serve on the other, et, et, et cetera. And it's that process of actually guarding Byzantium and recruiting people that created some kind of Slavic identity. And that it was actually happening in exactly the one place you wouldn't expect it. Mm-hmm. And then there was centuries of... of dark age turbulence and you kind of have this odd process of Romania becoming inheriting the language from the from the Latin speaking soldiers mm-hmm. used to be there, not Greek speaking, and the rest of Eastern Europe becoming Slavic speaking in a way that we don't can, can't really uh, account for. But that's such a can of worms. It used to be that people used to think it was in Poland, think people used to think it was in Ukraine, depending on you or in Russia. And I also think that's a that's an interesting theory, and there's a good book about it. But I, I can't fully flesh out all the medieval sources in archaeology that goes into. No, no, no. And in it, a way, it, I don't think we'll ever know for sure. Yeah, but it it's... happened <laughs> in this late Roman, early Byzantine welter of peoples, mm. and that may have happened on the frontiers. That the frontiers created ethnicity, the way the mm. kind of American frontier creates like identities around like the Texas-Mexico border. That something mm-hmm. like that was happening uh, in the Balkans. Yeah. That's it. Well, the reason it's important, I think, is, uh, yeah, it, it does seem like one of those mysteries you'll never know the answer to. But <clears throat> it, it it still to this day dominates so much of, of Europe. And so when you, when I read that part in the book, it was I also was super intrigued. I was like, oh, that's super interesting. So, um, okay. So you, you also talk about uh, Ashkenazi Jews, uh, and they have been all over Eastern Europe. Um, and there's a, a good amount that are, are that have settled in Poland. Uh, you also talk about the other two groups of Jews uh, that are there. So tell us about, um, I guess, generally, you're talking about in the book about Ashkenazi Jews, how they spread, why Poland was a place where there's a there was a large group of, of uh, Jews in Poland, and some of these other uh, two groups as well, and, and kind of some of the, the crossover and, and differences. As it is with a lot of other things, Eastern Europe is kind of a the place where different strands meet, different religions meet, different strands of Jewish identity actually historically met. It's kind of the contact zone between the Sephardic and the Ashkenazi world. It kind of runs right through the Balkans where the two, the Ashkenazi originally come from Germany. They speak a kind of German called Yiddish. That's a kind of a medieval German dialect that's adapted and transformed. Sephardic Jews originally come from Spain, Sephardic, and historically spoke Ladino mm. until, until, the, until the Holocaust. 
you had very large communities of essentially Spanish-speaking Jews across uh, really across the southern Balkans. Yeah, so in, in wow. the main cities of Macedonia, it's now North Macedonia, uh -huh. Uh -huh. you would go, you'd hear lots of medieval Spanish. So it's like wow. a dominant language of the of the slums there. And I didn't so, know. Sal yeah, so it was because um, they had they had been kicked out of Spain. Mm -hmm. Morocco, and then were invited in by the Ottoman Empire. Huh. And, uh, and most of them were, were killed in the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. The languages are almost extinct in the Balkans. Some survived, but they survived. They moved, usually moved to Israel. So mm -hmm. the pockets of Ladino speakers, mm -hmm. I think it's, it's in the you know, teens of people. Sarajevo used to have a big Ladino speaking house. She went to the museum of the Jewish community in Sarajevo. It was all, mostly Ladino speakers. So they had a Ladino choir that sung Spanish it's medieval Spanish, but it's, you, can, you can tell it's it's Spanish. They sure, yeah. Spanish yeah. songs. So that southern part of Eastern Europe, the Balkans, had this lasting Spanish heritage that really lasted until like 1944, and wow. then was almost extinguished. And in the north, it's it's German, it's Yiddish, mm -hmm. and Poland. Poland, Lithuania used to be this giant country, much bigger than modern day Poland, but also much looser, much like, kind of calling a country, kind of confederation, mm, Commonwealth. Okay. okay. Um, get into that in a second. But it became, for reasons that also aren't completely clear, the real cradle of European Jews. The, the greatest numbers, the greatest concentration, the fullest, the kind of, the, it's where most current Jews come from, especially in, in North America, especially in the West. Most Jews can trace their ancestry back to the Polish-Lithuanian lands. And then they might have gone from there to Russia or to England or to mm -hmm. France, mm -hmm. but ultimately go. And earlier, they arrived in Poland, Lithuania from German land, but they were there for hundreds of years and prospered enormously. And they were there because they were invited in. They were invited to develop what was a very underdeveloped part of Europe. They were there to essentially be these town dwellers. To do all the things that you did in towns, which is market grain, sell things, run taverns, and do it on noble estates. So you you had your serfs, your peasants working the land. You had landowners owning the land, but you needed an intermediate group mm. beholden to the lords, beholden to the powerful. And so they served as kind of they were the commercial intermediaries. And the towns of eastern Poland, the towns of Ukraine, the towns of Belarus were often either Plurality or majority Jewish. Mm. So imagine Jews as like small minority. In Germany, there was small, like one, two percent. Very culturally active, very processed, very much in the trades. In Eastern Europe, they might be 10, 20 percent of the overall population, but 40, 50, 60, 70 percent of the towns. So you would, if you were Jewish, you'd live in a town where most people you met, most people you interacted with, most people you saw every day were Jewish. Not all of them. Because there was a surrounding countryside, and there were some people in town, but you lived in a whole world of Jewish towns, the shtetls, and that shtetl Jewry is really a product of this, this Polish-Lithuanian world, kind of spilled out into the neighboring countries. Mm. Um, Russia tried to keep it kind of contained and not let it into, not let those Jews into Russia. That's called the Pale of Settlement. So it created this kind of reserve area of small-town German Yiddish-speaking Jews. Interesting. <clears throat> I, di I didn't know that about uh, uh, Jews from, from Spain and the whole thing and how it was almost 16. I, I did not know all that. It's, it's, it's so interesting. 
Um, Bulgaria too. Bulgaria had had Spanish speaking Jews until recently. Interesting, and and so I guess it, it's interesting how it kind of in this kind of sort of confederacy, if you will, of of, of Lithuania and Poland. I guess the other big thing here is <clears throat> about uh, religion of sorts, religion cultures you kind of mix here. But you mentioned that all over Europe. Jews and, and Christians lived side by side and had a lot in common uh, and how they lived together for, for, for many years in one region. You also talk other places in the book about how paganism was was prevalent in, in Eastern Europe as well. And then, of course, we'll get to, to Islam in a minute. But I guess for this one piece here, talk about how uh, – a little bit about the paganism thing, I guess, but then also how a lot of the times sometimes people try to make these – uh, uh, groups that are different, acrimonious, especially if you have culture or religion involved, but that Jews and Christians live side by side together in the same areas and cohabitate it, you know, well, uh, just, just explain how, how, how that kind of worked and, and functioned. So I'll start with the, the pagans. Eastern Europe, on the background of European history, stands out as the last part of Europe. That was Christianized. That was converted to Christianity. That was a con- con- Christian Christianity expanded in stages. First in the Roman Empire, then it kind of moved to Ireland, then in France, mm-hmm. and then Germany. The last part that really reached the very last part might be the last in Finland, but the but the last part, the last like large areas, large organized areas, be converted were in Eastern Europe. And usually, mostly around the year one thousand, mm-hmm. except for Lithuania, which is also a much bigger country once upon a time. Is ruled by proudly pagan dukes into the 14th century, to the end of the 14th century. So while the Renaissance is happening in Italy, um, you know, while it's like Henry Henry V time, Agincourt in in the West, you had full paganism in Vilnius, full and kind of Milton paganism fighting these German crusaders. So it's kind of the last stronghold of the old European faith, whatever that was, the, mm. the cult, which was not a single religion. We can't really, and we don't know enough to flesh out all of it, but you're talking, thinking about something much more local, much more devoted to the nature and the trees and the streams of particular places, mm. the local and an outdoor set of observances. And, and people have kind of interpreted a mythology, interpreted a set of gods. We have some names, we have some like bits and pieces. But we don't have the, the things we do for like Celtic mythology or Nordic mythology, especially we have a clear idea of kind of of at least what the, the pantheon was for the Scandinavians. In in the in the Slavic, Baltic, Eastern European zone, although there are bits and pieces, it's a much less even though it's lasted much later, the heritage, the the inheritance from it is much less clear. Mm-hmm. But it was a real contact zone between pagan and Christian. Then and some of those pagan traditions have really seeped into the folklore of the region, have been transformed into the folk festivals and folk mythology. So, um, so there's a kind of a spooky element in Eastern Europe. There are there's that like the whole kind of concept of vampires kind of has roots in this world of the cult of the dead, the belief in the meaning of the dead, the, the cult of the calendar and of the thin times of the year sort of lasts. Um, in terms of religious coexistence. It is, there is a kind of, again, dual process in Europe that over time, Western Europe 
gets more and more homogenous. It's more and more one thing in mm-hmm. each place. Mm-hmm. It, if you know anything about like Andal, like, you know Spanish history, you have this incredible multicultural Andalusia, Al Andalus, the the, the, Span, the Muslim yes. rulers, mm-hmm. and you have Muslims and Christians and Jews mm-hmm. all coexisting, not always peacefully, but finding a way to live in mm-hmm. in you know the same geographic area thriving off and working together, learning from each other, uh, interacting. But over time, and Spain's a nice model of this, you get less and you kind of, the countries consolidate, the power consolidates, usually in Christian hands, all, all, all is in Christian hands. And as that happens, they kick out the Jews, kick out the Muslims. Yeah. Uh, and that's so one by one, Western Europe kicks out its Jews, mm. starting with I think, England in the 12th century, but then... And the last one kind of do it is Spain, converts everyone in 1492. And then Eastern Europe, which is much emptier, which is much fewer people, and has much weaker countries, weaker economies. Mm-hmm. Our rulers there are like, well, this is a resource for us. Mm-hmm. These people in different ways can really help us because we always need manpower. We always need economic resources. We always need help. So they recruit Muslim soldiers. They recruit Jewish merchants. They're like, come in, settle. We'll take a cut of what you're doing. You can serve us. You can work for us. Find us. So Eastern Europe gets progressively more diverse. Gets more of that, and also has people coming in from the steppe, has people coming in from the east. Western Europe's kind of insulated from that. Those huge pulses of you know Eurasian history of Mongol invaders, Kuman invaders, Pechenik invaders, and then uh, this lasting Tartar presence in Crimea. That means there's always this involvement of of Islam in Eastern Europe in a way that really like drops off in the mm. West, which is just, I mean, less interesting, very, very Catholic, very Christian monoculture. That's not that, not that, you know, not that exciting. Mm-hmm. Well, you have this super interesting fermenting thing in the East. For me, it's, I think it's, you know, getting more and more boring on one side, more and more interesting <laughs> on the other. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I mean, as I, <clears throat> again, uh, one of the things we miss about uh, Eastern Europe, and, and and you can talk about you know obviously Eurasia as well, but is how diverse it is with religion and culture. Um, and it, it's interesting, uh, you know, here in the United States currently we have this obsession with diversity in, in in different ways. You know, maybe some for good, some for bad. But you know, it really is interesting how Eastern Europe. It, it, they've been doing that diversity thing for a long time, <laughs> living together, cohabitating together. And we're talking about, you know, the, the times were different, you know, hundreds of years ago and, and how they were able to, to make that happen. Um, I guess the, the other other bit here, so as you were mentioning it, is, uh, is about Islam. So interesting how countries became Muslim-majority countries, so Bosnia, Kosovo, Albania, and, and that it has a huge presence in, in many other countries. I'm thinking of Turkey, um, uh, many other places. So how did Muslims and Christians coexist for uh, many years in Eastern Europe? And, and you know, what was, where was the change there? You can also talk about the Ottomans as well. I mean, I feel like <laughs> I, I said this uh, recently. Every time I'm, I'm doing any kind of history now, the Ottomans just come up all the time. It's just all the time. Like, it's yeah. just 600, 700 years. And it's not just like, oh, they were around for a while. Like they're 
the way they had this like crazy administrative organization and how they had all of these different people groups, things like that. It's just Ottomans always pop up in conversation when you talk about history. So yeah, what was this Muslim uh, presence, how countries became Muslim majority? Talk about the Ottoman influence here. Um, what's the story there? The Ottomans are key. And the Ottomans, you know, I think they come up over because 500 years ago, they were the cutting edge. They were the cutting edge of administration. They were the cutting edge of military technology, military organization. They were absolutely the world, not the world, but the leaders in kind of that European, in, in the European vicinity. They were much more impressive, much more better organized. And really, there's a kind of, they could have, we can get to that, but you know, why didn't Europe become Ottoman? I think there's just kind of kind of like a problem of distance of like the and, and and space. The Ottoman interests were much more in the Middle East, North Africa, and towards the Persian Gulf, which seemed more more dynamic and interesting than in Europe, which was kind of more of a backwater. So you have this incredible dynamism of the Ottomans, who were just just seemed like the best at everything around fifteen fifteen hundred after uh, they take Constantinople. Mm-hmm. And it's the Ottoman presence which lasts so long and it's so deep in, yeah. in the Balkans, which is you know longer than Latin America has been Catholic. Mm-hmm. Most of the Balkans were under Turkish, Turkish this number, under Ottoman Muslim rule. Mm-hmm. You're talking 500 to 600 years. Um, people say a little less because the, the northern edge, Hungary, parts of Poland were, were un, are under Ottoman rule for a lot less. But that core part of the Southern Balkans, hundreds and hundreds of years. So the parts that did, it's actually a little bit mysterious why some parts converted, where the majority of people converted and other parts they didn't. And there are theories, and I don't want to get too granular about it, but it is that framework of the Ottoman Empire, which is a real empire, which really moved people around, which drew people into the center Mm -hmm. at Istanbul. So people would leave Albania. Albania is a tough place to live. It's mountainous. It's rocky. Or usually people would leave Albania. They'd go to work in Istanbul, which was enormous, huge, much by far the biggest city in Europe and had hundreds of, you know, had jobs in factories, had jobs in bathhouses, jobs in the army. And if you went into the army, then you'd be posted out in Azerbaijan, out in what's now Ukraine, out all over the empire. You might end up in Yemen. Those are all Ottoman Ottoman territories and we live in this giant cosmopolitan world. And so for certain parts of Eastern Europe, it became very attractive to, to join that ruling uh, dominant Muslim class. It's not a majority, it's a minority in some places, a majority in others. Uh, and that process is deepest in the Albanian speaking lands, Albania, Kosovo, and in Bosnia. Which may have to do with Bosnia's religious heritage before that, but may not. Uh, and there was a huge Ottoman presence also in, in Bulgaria and in Romania and in, in Serbia, but it's been less as those countries became independent, that heritage has been kind of rejected. Um, and the minority sometimes also expelled. There was like a large Turkish and Muslim minority in Bulgaria. They were actually expelled in the 80s. So you have a, a, that process of homogenizing, of getting rid of the minority has been going on kind of really started in Eastern Europe later than Western Europe, but it's been going on over the whole course of the 20th century. Maybe just to, to stay on the, on this, on this uh, uh, line here was, I guess more about how, obviously the Ottoman Empire was a big player, 
Uh, and they're getting a lot of people from different places. And obviously you mentioned Istanbul, which again right. today, I mean, for even, even today, I mean, it's literally sits, it's this massive city that sits between the Black Sea and then the Mediterranean, essentially. Yep. It's, it's, it's incredible uh, look in terms of location. But I guess further, how, how else, <clears throat> I mean, I, I know a lot of people and some folks I've talked to that people will study like early Ottoman, middle Ottoman, late Ottoman period, because it's just so big. But I guess what was the kind of, I guess, what's the kind of overview or general idea, aside from what you said, of how they ruled those regions of Eastern Europe and for so long? Like, what were the changes that took place? So, like, when it first started, you know, 1500-ish, you know, and then all the way to, you know, 20th century, again, we're talking hundreds of years here, but just generally, what would you say is the major thematic elements of how they ruled Eastern Europe specifically? Mm -hmm. Obviously, there's been much said about, you know, into the Mideast and into, um, uh, you know, some of some part of, of Western Europe. But how, how did they how did they manage this aside from bringing people in and having them come come uh, different parts of the region? I think common with a lot of the, the Eastern European empires. And almost maybe the most forcefully, the Ottomans ruled through managed inequality mm. by treating different people differently. And that's the kind of pre-modern, when we talk about this like diverse coexistence of Eastern Europe, the flip side of that is that no one was, there was no principle of equality. Mm. It didn't exist. Mm. It would seem absurd if you suggested like, oh, let's have every, like one set of laws for everybody. And they're like, well, what do you mean? <laughs> Christians have Christian laws. Muslims have Muslim laws. Jews have Jewish laws. Different, especially ethnic, but usually religious groups, religious groups doubling as ethnic groups, had each of their own laws, each their own level of, of autonomy, usually limited, but, but self-government, and certain things they were encouraged to do, and certain other things that they could not do. So um, I was very much true, the kind of the per social partitioning of the Ottoman Empire, and also the reason that people became Muslim was to jump, kind of to jump that barrier between being a Christian you could absolutely be Christian. You could absolutely worship as a Christian. But as Christians, you couldn't build new churches. You couldn't be part of the administration of the mm. state. Mm. Mm. You couldn't be part of the, the ruling, the class that administered laws or, or ran the army. And if you wanted to get into that, you had to become Muslim. And you could just easily you could convert. And people who said they wanted to join government, you had to leave Christian roots behind and become Muslim. Uh, there is, or especially in that early rising Ottoman period, there is the institution of the Janissaries, mm -hmm. where you are plucking Christian children, almost exclusively Christian children, often Serbian, Albanian children, they had the preference for the Bosnian children, and taking them into this formally what is a slave army, although slavery there is, is kind of a misnomer, but officially slave army that served purely for the sultan. Mm. It was part of the sultan's household that was trained from, from being a, from a teenager, uh, taken, converted, forcibly, trained in all the kind of elite Ottoman skills, horsemanship, archery, but also Islamic law, so conversation, mm. um, all the arts of a gentleman, and being part of this multi-thousand man strong kind of palace class of running the palace, running the upper echelons of the army, running the upper echelons of the bureaucracy. And that decays over time, turns into something kind of different, something kind of 
less prestigious, but but more influential. And there's there are different long scale. Ottoman Empire is so long; it kind of has a long period of growth and a long period of stability, a long period of complicated kind of multi-part decay. So when you talk to historians who only study like a part, there's different phases of Ottoman history mm-hmm. inherit a lot from each other, but also change in deep ways. But I would say that it's it is that management of inequality, of keeping people yeah. separate, but also giving them their own spheres that lets the system work, that you are participating in, in, in the North. Jews are Jews get to have these Jewish majority cities, Jewish majority towns, but they are not allowed to say own farms. They're not allowed to work at the countryside. And they are not allowed to join the urban or a or kind of royal administration. They are and, and vice versa. You, you aren't, you're con, people confining people based on religion and language into these bubbles, into these social bubbles that it's hard to cross unless you fully change who you are. You change your language, you change your religion, and you change your social status. It's hmm. interesting. It's like the, it's like this, uh, it's, like, it's like an interesting form of pluralism, uh, almost. Uh, of course, it sounds more pernicious i guess in some ways but it is this kind of like well you're over there you do your thing you can't cross over here and do anything over here but you're fine in your kind of quadrant if you will uh, or your region your sector um i think there's elements of that in pluralism of sorts i mean of you know of thinking of you do different things here it's obviously again a little bit more it's it's less maybe kind of rigid in terms of the distinctions between but it, it sounds like there's some element of that which is interesting um, you know, it, it runs very counter to like our our kind of twentieth century, twenty first century assumptions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They're supposed to like everyone's supposed to be a citizen. Everyone has like a certain mm-hmm. equal, you know, equal equality of laws was just anathema. It didn't operate in the Russian Empire either. Um, you had separate laws based on who you were, and that was absolutely the system. And it seemed because you also you had things you weren't allowed to do, disabilities, and you had your privileges, and no one wanted to give up their privileges because you had things that you that especially higher up the, the kind of ladder of social class. Um, and it, and there wasn't like a shared single public space. So it mm-hmm. runs very counter to like how we think of a country functioning. It is not a citizenry. It is a group of subjects under an emperor, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, it's, it's, inter- it's interesting though. I don't, <laughs> I find it interesting. I, I don't think I, I find it, you know, that I want to adopt it or do that kind of version, but it is interesting because two reasons. One is how we understand how people are. People are very groupish. They are very much that way. They will make groups happen even if you're not telling them to be in a group or whatever. It's, it's That's our nature, I think, of sorts. The second reason why that's interesting to me is Again, I'm sure there are, again, pretty pernicious things that were put in place if those things were broken. So, you know, and again, different time, you know, what, what was it true in the 16th century is not going to be true in the 21st century. However, to maintain that over such big parts of land with, you know, I mean, you know, not getting there except for by horse or, or ship, uh, and to maintain that so many groups and over such big land and have that organized is, in a in one way impressive um and so it 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 interests me to say well what about that i guess aside from like 
punishment or or <laughs> or something worse what about that had some efficiency uh and again i'm not saying that we should mm. adopt that for a modern time i'm not no. <laughs> i'm not i'm not espousing that but it is interesting at the very least from a historical perspective of how I mean, we're talking 600 years you know plus or minus of of doing it that way or or or, or large portions of that time doing it that way which is uh, very fascinating i mean it is there is a kind of achievement there kind of an inadvertent achievement almost sometimes yeah but um that that a kind of benign neglect allows this kind of genuine deep diversity diversity of of, of thought and faith and, and language to sustain itself and the flip side of that is it means you know whatever you were born into it was very hard to change it was very hard to cross boundaries it was very hard to cross boundaries of class yeah it was very hard to cross boundaries of profession the kind of things we, we kind of take for granted take for a little bit for granted or very much want to be able to you know be born in one place move to another switch jobs pursue careers you pretty much are going to do what your parents did what mm -hmm. your father did what your mother did um you're gonna you're going to live within a circumscribed, pretty narrowly circumscribed world and not have a lot of say in any kind of government. But it also meant you did have this incredible plurality that that vanished at the 20th century, specific and, mod and modernity extinguished. So I mean, the book is a little bit, you know, not three cheers for empire, but let's say two cheers for one and a half cheers for empire. You know, it's like actually the maybe despite themselves, there was something that they, you know, they did achieve, that they maintained, that they, they were good stewards of this, you know, complex human soup, that, like Western Europe really, in the process of modernizing, got rid of, got rid of on purpose to have an increasingly religiously, linguistically homogenous population that was easy to control, easy to manage, easy to, you know, pit in war against its neighbors. Mm -hmm. This was a different world that, um, you know, lasted to kind of kind of my grandparents' time. It's not totally ancient history. Like my grandfather was born by named after my grandfather, Jakub Mikanovsky, same name. Mm -hmm. Was born under the Tsar. Was born in a world that where that was reforms were kind of taking the edge off mm -hmm. of all these kind of legal boundaries. But his grand his his grandfather absolutely lived in a world mm -hmm. of complete social partitioning. Where, where Jews could do one thing, Christians could do another, Russians could do one thing, Poles could do another thing, that world. Um, it's, in, it's, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's something that I, I, I think a lot about in, in, in the book and your, in the, the conversation now is, is making me think about it again, not trying to give the finer sides of empire, <laughs> but I do have this question all the time, mostly because of how shitty a lot of things are in the united states i mean there's some wonderful things about the united states obviously i love my country but you know i think it's 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 there's when you see disorder or you see chaos you're like well how do other how how do other places now manage this and how have other places in the past managed this i mean we're the third largest in terms of population but it's like yeah when i i asked this question i've asked it i think before in the podcast you know when again i'm i'm not you know, standing for, you know, the CCP in China. But my question is, how do you govern 1.4 billion people? I don't know how, I mean, that, mm -hmm. that number doesn't even register in my brain. Like I, I just, or in India, they have a, 
you know, quasi-democracy. I don't, you know, you can have your opinions about Modi or whatever, but the, how do you govern 1.3 billion people? I mean, I have no idea. We can't even govern 330 million in the United States. So it's just, I don't understand how you do it. So then when I look to other empires <clears throat> or other places that do that do manage diverse groups of people in the same space for hundreds of years, it's like, well, something about that is a type of achievement or something about that is a type of effectiveness. And, you know, obviously you don't want all the ter terrible parts, of course, because I mean, no one is, is you know, squeaky clean. Those empires are clean. So again, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not uh, showing the finer signs of the Ottoman empire necessarily. They have their faults for sure. But in terms of organization administration, it is fascinating, especially with all these different people groups, you know, living it, close together. Yeah, it is. And it's, and it's deeply ironic because the, the process of making things more equal, making things more democratic, in a way kind of unleashed Pandora's box in a lot mm -hmm. of many places of, mm -hmm. of ethnic strife. Because mm -hmm. you have this kind of unique society that's predicated on, you know, upper classes having one language and religion, lower classes peasants having another language religion, and then a merchant class that's even a different religion and language. And then if you ask, you know, who's, who should be in charge? Mm -hmm. Who should who should govern a country like that? Mm -hmm. Who's the who's the who should inherit it from the empire? Is it the people who work the land? Is it the people who own the land? Is it the people who buy and sell in between the two? Mm -hmm. How do you manage a compromise between three or four groups, mm -hmm. all of which are deeply rooted in a place, all of which have a claim to it, all of which you mm -hmm. know? Is it the, is, should the elites give everything up? Should the peasantry inherit everything. And you have, in the process of the negotiation in the 20th century, you unleash just a, uh, a tempest of ethnic conflict, um, which doubles as religious conflict. At the same time, though, remember, like, you know, in, in the 20th century, the worst of that comes from outside Eastern Europe. Mm. The worst of that kind of ethnic um, racial utopia or class utopia of, like, really trying to completely eliminate groups either based on class or based on uh, religion, ethnicity, are, are these dueling ideological empires of Nazi Germany and, and Stalinist Soviet mm -hmm. Union. Not so much, although there is local strife in Eastern Europe, that kind of absolute kind of world transforming that's completely rejiggered society by like, killing all the kulaks, killing all the Jews. That actually comes from outside. Mm -hmm. um, Eastern European governments don't have to be that ambitious. In a good way, there's a kind of like, yeah, let's live and let live and and buy and buy. There was violence. It was at a lower simmer, and it's hard to be like, well, that's great. Like you know, you only had like local problems, but it is true. You you had a way of getting along mm -hmm. that then these you know, world like let's transform society in a single go, mm -hmm. uh, according to a racial or classical blueprint, causes just the real. The deepest layer of destruction, the deepest, like, mm. the greatest casualties come from that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it reminds me, I mean, I, I won't bring it up here. I'll just note it as, I'll kind of flag it as a footnote. But it reminds me a little bit of some of Nietzsche's ideas about politics and governance. And he has some interesting ideas where I don't think people are fully flushed out. Most people focus on his morality and, you know, all that stuff and, and philosophy of life. But his his politics are interesting to say at least and i get some <clears throat> feelings of of some of his ideas here in eastern europe so it's interesting
Um, okay, so let's uh, let's let's talk a little bit about you mentioned it before. So let me just just uh, chat a little bit more about it if if you, if you want about this Poland Lithuania uh, almost empire uh, and how their relationship with was with uh, Russia. Um, I, I'm assuming. I mean, I didn't know this. I mean, I'm assuming most folks don't know that Poland and uh, Lithuania were kind of what you were saying earlier. It's kind of like this big uh, con- confederate kind of land of sorts, if you will. This big uh, province or territory, kind of this whole big kind of uh, region. Um, yeah, just how 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 different was that at at that time, and then. You know, what was some of the kind of misadventures, I guess, with Russia? And so Poland-Lithuania, or the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, Polish-Lithuanian Republic, is kind of a lost, the forgotten figure in European history. Mm-hmm. They, were, they were huge. They're probably the biggest. Well, right, just about, closely tied to Muscovy as one of the, the biggest country, the largest amount of territory under one set of rulers mm-hmm. in Europe. Mm-hmm. And it kind of you have to kind of carve out Ottoman Empire for the same the parts that are in Europe and then the parts outside Europe. Mm-hmm. But uh, one of the biggest countries in Europe, the 17th century. And they vanish. They vanish off the map of Europe. And they become in some ways forgotten because then they reemerge 120 years later in a new form mm-hmm. uh, that doesn't have that much to do with the original one. Poland and Lithuania were actually the queen of Poland who was Christian married the Lithuanian Duke of Lithuania, the pagan Lithuanian Duke of Lithuania, on the conditions like, we'll get married, you'll get to run the whole thing, but you have to become Christian. That's how Lithuania stopped being pagan. Mm-hmm. It was marriage. And then you have these two, and Lithuania was a giant place. It was most of, most of Western Ukraine, Belarus, Lithuania, Latvia, really big on the map, and then Poland combined. It was militarily powerful. It was... But it had a lot of, I say almost empire, because it never centralized. Mm. It never had that Constantinople. It never had that sultan. It was actually, um, it had was ruled by one dynasty, Lithuanian dynasty for a long time, and then it became an electoral monarchy. Mm. So all the nobles in the country, noble root said, noble like grandmother came from Lithuanian gentry, they used to come from this world, mm. worked for the Lithuanian dukes, uh, would gather together and vote on the king and choose a king and usually choose someone from outside because they, they were all jealous of each other so they didn't want any, any one of themselves to become too powerful. Mm-hmm. And so it was, a, it was a great place to live if you were noble because all the nobles are technically equal. There are tons of them, thousands and thousands of them. Some were very rich, some were that rich. Some had huge personal armies, some were just regular soldiers. But they they didn't really have to pay taxes. They had a huge say in government. They had a huge say in local government. It was very much more like they called it a republic and kind of was, but only the top six, seven, eight percent had a say in things. But they had a huge say. It was not run by like a king the way Prussia was mm-hmm. or England was. It was really run by this kind of loose collection of people with a king who was a little bit of a figurehead. And that was a neat way of doing things. This kind of had a lot in common with the parts of Germany wasn't the country for the longest time. It was mm-hmm. ruled by bits and pieces. The Holy Roman Empire wasn't a real country. It was kind of a mm-hmm. assemblage. So it's kind of something like in that. Mm-hmm. A lot of Europe wasn't in countries. It was in this kind of assemblage. It was a little stronger than that. But ultimately, it, it vanishes. Russia takes the biggest part of it. Mm-hmm. It gets carved up by its neighbors. 
hmm. realize that as Russia is taking part of it, we can't let Russia have the whole thing. So let's get in while the going's good and literally carve the pie up. Hmm. So Austria takes the piece, Russia takes the piece, Russia takes the biggest piece. In 1795, after a process of this going on, Poland, Lithuania vanishes. Not on the map anymore, not independent, and never comes back in that same shape. After World War I, Poland and Lithuania both come back as independent countries, but much smaller, much more homogenous. Hmm. Interesting. And, and, and modern countries run by presidents. It's hmm. very interesting. Uh, let's, let's move to Transylvania. That's what you say. It's, it's, Love Transylvania. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's just, uh, Hungarians, uh, Saxons, uh, Zecklers, all these different people groups. Uh, and again, we've got that same, same, same theme here. Uh, it's this bit of diversity in Eastern Europe. Uh, what was, is, if I'm right, uh, Transylvania is a lot of it in modern day Romania. Is that, is that mm -hmm. correct? Almost all of historical Transylvania is currently in modern day Romania. Is okay. the whole kind of north, mm -hmm. northwest. It's a beautiful place, wonderful mm -hmm. to visit, mm -hmm. uh, wonderful to travel around. Yeah. Uh, not, I think people just, I was talking to someone, they're like, well, I didn't even realize it was a real place. I thought it was just kind of like, you know, like Dracula. You know, it's no, it's, it's a right. It's a real place. It was a kingdom, mm -hmm. a quasi autonomous kingdom for a long time. It's a totally a place you can have a cool movie festival. <laughs> yeah, they have great agro tourism. They have great bicycling. You know, you just yeah. go and, and travel around. It's very nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I guess. I guess. Yeah, I, know, I, I mean, I, I've seen pictures from over there. I, I mean, it was absolutely gorgeous. And again, it's just kind of uh, another footnote here in terms of. You know, everyone goes to Western Europe. I mean, myself included. I think mostly because it's easy to get to. So I'm I'm here on the East Coast. So, you know, I, to be honest, I mean, <laughs> it's cheaper for me to fly to uh, uh, Western Europe than it is to the West Coast of the United States for me. <laughs> you know, I can, I can get to Paris or, or or London cheaper than I can get to Los Angeles from over here on the East Coast. But usually, when you when Eastern Europe is a little bit a little bit more of a reach um, because usually you need to make a stop and usually it's another plane and it's usually a little bit difficult, but uh, it is from everyone that I know that's either from there or been there. Uh, absolutely gorgeous. And it's uh, not as, as visited as much as all the other places in Western Europe. So it's, it's definitely a, a place for me. That I want to want to get to, but I guess again, how, how, how do we understand how there's all of these different uh, people groups or ethnicities in Transylvania historically and how that kind of all shapes out, uh, to modern day. Although, I mean, I just think Transylvania is just plugging it from the Transylvania Tourism Bureau. Uh, <laughs> if they're listening, I'd, I'd, I'd love to work for you. But uh, what interests me historically is that Transylvania is a kind of nice microcosm of what makes Eastern Europe tick, because that it has yeah. this social structure that is very complex, very unlike Western Europe, and very unlike the rest of Eurasia, very unlike Russia. You don't find anything like this. You find it repeating again and again with the different parts of it Mm -hmm. have different labels, different uh, details. Mm -hmm. But the model, kind of like a layer cake, where each layer is a different flavor, different color. So as you go up the social ladder, you have each part, each class, speaks a different language, worships a different, at a different church, different, speaks a different... Uh, so language, religion, class, all different. They're mm -hmm. all next to each other. So um, the towns in Transylvania, the cities, in other languages, Transylvania is beyond the forest. 
But in other languages, it's usually Siebenburg or Shedmugel, uh, the seven cities. There's seven big towns in Transylvania, and they were all German. The people in them were German-speaking, arrived early in the Middle Ages, came to mine, came to, there's a lot of silver there, so they came to mine. So there are these German-speaking cities, German walls, German churches, they become Lutheran after the Reformation. The people who run the country are mostly Hungarian. And there's still, there's still a German minority in Transylvania. There's still a Hungarian minority in Transylvania. They were Hungarians. They spoke Hungarian. Sometimes they were Catholic. Sometimes they were Catholic. The Hungarian, very different from German. And then the people who were the most of the people out in the fields were Romanian. They weren't mm-hmm. Orthodox. They weren't mm-hmm. Catholic. They weren't Protestant. Mm-hmm. They were Orthodox Christians. And the Orthodox, very different, very different religiously. And they were Romanian-speaking. And then there was another group of the, these kind of soldier settlers called settlers. We were even Hungarian language, but different and religiously. And they were kind of the soldiers of the dream. So you had four groups, three languages, four religions, all together. And you would see that all like if you could, you know, you could start your day in a German town, walk through these Romanian fields, go to the Hungarian castle, all you know within a, within a day's walk, and all that coexisted because it was kept separate because you weren't if you were a Hungarian landowner you wouldn't go and become a German townsman if you were a German townsman you wouldn't go and become a, a, Hung- a Romanian field worker if you're a Romanian field worker you might want to rise up and do and but you were blocked by the fact that you didn't speak the language or belong to the religion so it was kept separate but together. And that's how a lot of Eastern Europe works. That's what kind of makes it distinct historically, is that you have that close cohabitation and almost like symbiosis, but Mm -hmm. also Mm -hmm. real inequality, real social separation. And you can find that from Latvia up in the north down down to Albania in the south. Variations of that where you can change religions, you can change the languages, but somehow the layer cake is always there. You don't really find that in central Russia. Where, where there are different classes, but everyone's Russian, everyone's Russian Orthodox. You don't find it in France, where everyone's Catholic mm-hmm. and French. Mm-hmm. You know, and there, there are minorities, they're in little pockets geographically. This is yeah. every part, every village has some variation of it. it, has like a landlord speaking one language, peasant speaking another, merchant speaking another, etc. Mm-hmm. It's like a fractal diversity. Mm-hmm. 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 Well, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm booking my ticket right now to Romania. I mean, you sold me on it. I mean, <laughs> it's it's great. <laughs> that sounds it sounds it sounds absolutely lovely. It sounds lovely. Um, it's interesting. Again, it, it's it's one of those things where it's uh, two things here. I guess the one thing from I'll say Western, but I'll say American really eyes is again we think about diversity in a very different way almost uh, a forced way. I know in this conversation, it sounds like I'm really against mm-hmm. diversity in the United States. I'm totally not. I'm all for diversity in the United States. I'm a product of diversity. You know, it's, it's not, it's not that I just, I see it as different. Like when I, when I look at, at, at folks that are from different parts of the world, it's like, yeah, some, some places have, we need to think about people groups or ethnic groups. They've been co-mingling and cohabitating and coexisting together uh, in, in mixed ways or 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 in uh, in discrete ways for hundreds of years or thousands of years, like the rest of the world does this. It, it, it's 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 so fascinating to me how how this how this comes about. And so you know, kind of how you're mentioning it here, 
it's almost like when I think about like if I if I think about a country, especially you know Eastern Europe or in other parts of the world, I'm always thinking about like okay, yeah, but which which part? Because there's going to be a different people group there, or is a different ethnicity, and it's it it's actually. I think the example you gave earlier is, is interesting about Spain because a lot of people don't know that. Right. Oh, there's Spanish, and it's like, well, there's you know Andalusia, there's you know the Basque Country, there's Catalonia, there's the islands, there's in the south, there's obviously Madrid, there's obviously, and there's all these different groups that they have this allegiance. the uh, The gateway into that is if you just watch enough La Liga f- uh, football, you'll you'll get some of the <laughs> some of the rivalry of of all these. Uh, why why does uh why does uh uh, athletic Bill Bow really, you know, hate, you know, uh, you know, Atletico Madrid. It's like, well, you know, there's like you know, there's a different language and a dialect and a history and a culture and they fought each other. And it's like, oh, okay. So this, this game means a lot more. And obviously the big one is, you know, Barcelona Madrid. So anyways, it's interesting how that, how that, how that works. Um, it's, we talked about it in different ways. <clears throat> you had a chapter middle of the book about uh, language and, but, but specifically, how language relates to nationalism for many Eastern European countries. Now, for many people, nationalism is a you know is a trigger word, it's a dirty word, but it's fascinating. Um, how could you explain how you see language connected with nationalism in certain certain I guess, nation states, and then how that also connects with with culture? Because I'm going back to the, the the first early in the conversation we were talking about. So what does it mean to be Slav, you know, or Slavic is, well, the language, but then it's in different places. And so how, how does, how do I explain this? How, how do we understand like different people primarily through language as a major identifier I mean, isn't there a lot of problems with that? Language evolves, language changes, language. And so then if you're like, well, to be this is this language, it, isn't that kind of putting too much emphasis on it? But, you know, those are kind of my my already my 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 uh, questions to follow up on there. But I guess just start with how does language relate to nationalism and how it's connected with culture and identity? I think more than anywhere else in Eastern Europe, Nationalism and language are connected. And nationalism, nationalisms are founded around languages, around promoting languages and around like building, speaking a language, which is originally kind of a neutral quality into the root of an identity, into the root of a political identity. The idea of nationalism, especially in its Eastern European variety, is that we shouldn't be ruled by these funky international empires, you know, some German speaking dukes from somewhere called Habsburgs or some Muslim sultans, just because they're the, the 28th you know, generation son of, son of Osman. <laughs> we speak Slovene, Romanian, Belarusian, whatever it is. We should be ruled by other people who speak Belarusian, Czech, Slovene, whatever it is. Something that in the pre-modern world is just kind of a, you know, you speak whatever language you're born into. Mm-hmm. And the thing that really matters about you is that you're what kind of, what religion you are and what class you are. Mm-hmm. And often those are paired. But it's like, that's the root of identity. If you ask someone in the 17th century, what's your identity? They would say, 
you know, I, I, I believe in Christ. I'm, I'm Jew, or I'm, you know, I'm Muslim. That would be the primary source of identity. In the 19th century, as you're introducing political modernity, as you're introducing ideas of democracy, not the reality of the democracy, but the idea that maybe we should have democracy, maybe the majority of men, usually just men, mm-hmm. should have a say in government. Well, well, but they don't. We're still in feudalism, we're still in empire. But who would that be? What's the biggest kind of umbrella we can make for regional power, regional power? And people center on language. People focus, people zero in mostly on language. Language is a counter to empire. Let's say the Habsburg Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Czech speakers are like, well, why should we have to learn German to, to be a town clerk or to, or to be in the law school or to be in the county administration or to be a teacher, to have any of the jobs in government? Why can't we do it in our own language? Mm. Our own language, often, because most of the languages, most of the vernaculars are peasant languages or local languages, aren't very prestigious. It's the process of nationalism begins by first strengthening the language, first strengthening that as a source of identity, which wasn't lived before, wasn't that important. It was just like, well, you're born to Czech farmers, you speak Czech, but then if you go to school, you're going to learn German. And if you're going to st- pursue anything in higher education, you can, you're doing it in German, but you can speak Czech at home. It doesn't really matter. But as we're thinking about creating political entities that aren't imperial, Language becomes the kind of engine of that. Strengthening language, strengthening language's identity, and then taking that and saying, this should be our this should be the basis of our government. Is Czech, you know, a, a Czech land for Czech speakers and Poland for Polish speakers. So they became incredibly interlinked. Um, more so than than anywhere else, because in Western Europe you don't have to do that. You don't have to be like France. Or French speakers. Most people speak French. Not everybody. Like in Spain, you know, you have you have conflicts across where the Catalan part of the country is never totally reconciled to that, like Castile and and and, and Madrid country. And you have you have breaks along linguistic lines. So that's taking that same process, but it's maybe less in Western European countries. The the dominant language is so dominant usually that it isn't a source of differentiation of political differentiation spain's kind of the 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 outlier there Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. celtic languages in 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 the uk a little bit like wales yeah a little little bit bit. well ireland has a little bit of that but i mean there's so much english is so dominant actually spain kind of has a little bit of that like like the basque separatists catalan separatists but then Mm -hmm. spain doesn't fall apart and also hungary the the Eastern European empires all fall apart. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you have you have that mm-hmm. nationalism steps into the breach. Okay, this might be a false equivalency here. So you tell me if I'm wrong. <clears throat> I think of like in some. So the one country that's just in a modern time is just popping up to me. Sort of similar. I mean, it's different, different histories and stuff, but it's just popping up as a comparison. Is um again, it's not quite the same, but it's but it, I I there there is some connection to this, right? And and people can correct me if I'm wrong. 
But I think of um of Bolivia. Bolivia and in South America is a landlocked country. Highly and I think because it's landlocked country, I mean it is I mean 70, 80% indigenous uh folks. Um <clears throat> whatever your opinions are of him, you know, Evo Morales was a the president of Bolivia for maybe too long. <laughs> um a lot of socialist uh, uh strong socialist tendencies, et cetera. He's not president now, but and one of the things though was that everybody had to learn uh you know spanish i think it's the national language but also the national language is quechua and people they wanted to, and it wasn't just learning it was learning the language but it was also the histories and the culture and things like that because they didn't want to lose that language there's so much connected with their identity and yes we're going to do spanish because you know for for various reasons there's lots of you know the spanish to go there and communicate with the rest of latin america but they wanted to keep, uh, because it was so strong and so majority of Bolivia of, you know, this kind of Quechua. And again, Quechua is one, I guess you could say, primary, uh, you know, language, dialect of, you know, multiple ones in different, you know, tribes and groups. Is it something like that in Eastern Europe where there's like, we're going to speak Czech, even if everyone else is speaking German or whatever, because this says something about who we are so we don't lose a type of identity so this like emphasis on identity and who we are with language because that's what we have is that kind of similar in that way or, or is it a little bit different i think very much i think there is especially go back to the 19th century because now it's i mean they kind of won it's a this is quechua one and bolivia was like a completely quechua country and it's like well some yeah, people yeah. speak you know learn spanish in school but no, no one no one grows up few people grow up enough yeah spanish speaking school is that in the next century the feeling was we are facing linguistic extinction mm. that we have these languages that are increasingly lower class increasingly pushed out of anything elite pushed out of any pushed out of literature pushed out of the newspaper mm. pushed out of the schools pushed out of even elementary school and we let this go another couple decades mm. all our kids will just be german you have yeah. that in Slovenia. You have that across the Austro-Hungary. As um, like in Ottoman Empire, it's much more about Christianity versus Islam. But in in Austro-Hungary, yeah, you have that feeling of like, well, this weight of German cultural prestige and economic might and power, and just the size of it, and and how and how useful it is. How do we how do we stand against it? Is to really kind of grassroots organize start publishing stuff in Czech, even if people can't read it, start like making Czech dictionaries, start trying to cultivate Czech. Mm. And, and Czech's a nice model, but it happens, it's happening in these other languages, but kind of Czechs are, are first to it. Um, and it is, you're, you're, revi you're reviving or awakening the language. That's how people speak about it. Mm. And once you have that, it's kind of a snowball of more speakers more investment language, and then you're like differentiating yourself. You're like, okay, mm -hmm. as the 19th century progresses, it's like, it's not just like, well, we speak Czech and we're writing Czech books. It's like, I only want to drink Czech beer and drink German beer. I only want to go to a Czech opera, not German opera. I only want to rent or build Czech apartment buildings. I want Czech, and I want each town we're fighting politically to get more and more seats on the government. And so, I mean, that, that project in Niva Morales is, has a lot to do with that early phase of linguistic nationalism of like 
revive the language, to revive the identity, and then you have a political base to start gathering political power in the whole country. You know, so it is, and, and it's driven. The impetus is that fear of extinction, fear of being subsumed by a more powerful, more hegemonic, more economically and culturally dominant mm-hmm. outsider. Because these are small languages. Yeah, 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 yeah. A million people, million people that back then, like yeah. tons of dialects. I think of two examples real quick here on, on this is, um, I mean, I don't know the histories here. I know there's, again, there's a lot of <clears throat> crossing here, but in modern day, I mean, it's like in Switzerland, right? They speak Swiss German. They mm-hmm. speak, um, what do they, they speak like two different, it's not just Swiss, right? French, it's a, there's Italian, and there's a tiny, tiny amount of like their own romance. Yeah. Language. I think only like 1% speaks. But like, right. Uh, or yeah. in Belgium, it's half, right? It's like yeah. some version of French and some version of Dutch or something like that, right? Is, is that was... I don't know the, the histories of these countries, but is it something like a long time ago? It, it it wasn't that they did speak their own language, and it kind of got. It, we see examples of this, whether it's in Europe or other places, where there is an extinction of a language, where it's like it's gone, and then it just or it gets subsumed into other languages. So there's like a kind of mishmash of like ah, it's mostly this, but there's a few words here that we use that makes it kind of distinct. Is there other examples where the that has happened? Example is probably the British Isles. Okay, is that the, the Celtic languages. Mm-hmm. either went extinct or are hanging on by a thread and now mm-hmm. the government kind of like promotes them only to a point uh, Cornish I think went extinct in the 18th so in like so the Celtic fringe of, of Ireland and UK so the, the far west mm-hmm. used to be heavily heavily Celtic mm-hmm. uh, different dynasties. Cornish went extinct totally in the 18th mm-hmm. century Scots Scots is a part of Scottish Scotch, the like the the way they speak English, their English dialect. But then there's the Scottish Gaelic, mm-hmm. is not extinct, but it's spoken by very very people, mm. very close. Mm. Irish is a minority language that has like been rekindled in mm-hmm. Ireland. And in Ireland, the part of the ideas of Irish independence mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. early 20th century were that Irish people will speak Irish in the future. That's what the first president of Ireland predicted very much, like in one generation. Ireland will be a country of Irish speakers, Irish Celtic, and it didn't happen. It remains a language of just kind of some people learn it in school, some people are from the far west, kind of the poorest, most marginal parts of Ireland have it. And what Wales is kind of interesting. Wales has a history of like language revival and mm-hmm. language festivals, and this language like we need to promote Welsh and kind of kind of Welsh nationalism in the 19th century. It's very similar to a lot of the Eastern European processes. And a lot of the best historians of Eastern Europe from the English-speaking world are Welsh because they have that mm. affinity for it. It mm-hmm. kind of has that like embattled minority that's trying to survive through language that kind of is that catch-up effect of like it's mm-hmm. Kindle, it's like promote. Um, and if the UK falls apart, you know. It's interesting. It's interesting. It's interesting. I when I, I visited uh, England two years ago, almost two years ago, and I went to Wales. <clears throat> Very easy to get there from from London, and and uh, I, I really I really loved Wales. I was in Cardiff for for a little bit, and I, I really loved it. I thought it was it was gorgeous, and it was beautiful, and it was really nice and kind of cool small town vibes. Very very, I, I I really enjoyed it. But I remember getting off of the train and was like immediately was like oh. That's not English. That's 
That's mm-hmm. something close, but that is not English. That's different. And then I started noticing like the signs would be in two languages. It'd be Welsh, whatever, with the languages. And then it was like, oh, that's that looks different. And then it was, oh, and then English. I was like, oh, it wasn't everywhere, but it was on some things. And it was like, oh, there was this interesting kind of like, kind of both. There was kind of both that was there. And it felt, I know it's all part of the UK and it was, you know, it's on the same island and things like that, but it felt distinct. I'll say that. Mm-hmm. It felt different than how England was in, in a really cool way. I thought it was, I thought it was like a nice kind of preservation that they have of their own kind of thing. It's, a, it's incredible kind of how tenacious those languages are in the face of, I mean, essentially centuries of being close to outlawed in terms of education, kind of survived by the Methodist church, but you couldn't learn, you wouldn't learn Welsh in school for mm-hmm. most of the 19th century. And they kind of tenaciously hang on and hang on. And if you imagine an alternate history where the UK loses World War One, the way Austro-Hungary lost World War One, mm-hmm. and that you have splinter, you know, like Wales becoming its own country, mm-hmm. Scotland becoming its own country, and over over time becoming majority Celtic speaking, mm-hmm. you kind of have what 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 turned out in Eastern Europe, in a lot of Eastern Europe, which the parts of Austro-Hungary. Mm-hmm. Although you were starting there with a heavier, yeah, larger base. But what you know, if you go back two hundred years. Mm-hmm. You're starting in a similar spot. But yeah. ultimately, there's an interesting book called um, Heisman's into Frenchman about how France became French. Mm. Is that the state, the government really tried to promote, like in, in all, you know, there's the French core and the edges of France speak things. There's a little Basque corner, there's a little Flemish corner, there's a little Breton corner. They're really promoting French, French identity, French language, very uniform. France has this incredibly centralized government. And that's doesn't achieve that much mm. until you have the railways mm. and the telegraph mm. and an integrated like labor market where people have to like leave and go work in Paris and work as nannies and serve in the army rule one. And that, that process of modernization achieves what the country as a, as a kind of top down project couldn't achieve the bottom up economic transformation really does like get mm-hmm. rid of a lot of the French dialects like over and yeah. Um, but Eastern Europe, you know, Slavic persists and Slavic becomes mm-hmm. those like dominant peasant languages, languages mm-hmm. of the, of the farm working majority, mm-hmm. Romanian, say in Transylvania, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. not Hungarian yeah. of the landowners, not the yeah. German of the townspeople yeah. becomes the language of the, of the nation state. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's ultimately it gives a, it gives a new perspective on, on a lot of those things in, in, in a lot of ways. So let's, uh, let's, I mean, obviously there's, I mean, so much to talk about in the 20th century. Um, so we can just do the major themes here. Um, <clears throat> I guess what, how did the 20th century? So obviously there's, there's a lot <laughs> that happens. You have World Too War. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot. There's, you know, World War One. Uh, obviously you have World War Two, And then afterwards of, you know, what communism did. Um, you know, for much of the, the you know, call it end of World War II until the 90s or whatever in much of Eastern Europe. But I guess at the turn of the, excuse me, 20, turn of the 20th century, how did kind of the modernization of, of the world, but really modernization in general, impact uh, Eastern Europe and then having, you know, uh, two wars in there and how that also kind of 
really hit um, uh, Eastern Europe. I mean, it hit all of Europe hard, but it hit Eastern Europe pretty hard as well, especially, I mean, Poland was, I mean, essentially not a country after World War II, right? I mean, it was, I mean, it was, but I mean, it was, it was very much decimated terribly. So of what the, the, the Nazi mm-hmm. Germany did there. So anyways, just, just talk about the modernization bit at the beginning. And then the, I guess the two world wars, any major themes you want to extract from, from there on, on how it impacted Eastern Europe. I would say something that's interesting in Eastern Europe, different from Western Europe, different from the rest of the world, is you have different kind of layers of time coexisting. And modernization happens in a kind of, let's say, abrupt fashion. People people want, this is something actually shares with, with, with Russia, is that modernization is slow to arrive. It's arriving before World War One, but arriving slower at a slower pace, slower pace of economic development. You still have a lot of that old world of people tied to the land, people tied to their uh, landowners, almost feudal society in the process of transition to modernity. And then you have people who are like, "Well, why are we? Why are we behind? Why are we backwards? Why can't we jump into the future? Mm. Why can't we really get there all at once?" Why can't we make this leap from kind of the mud to the stars? Mm. And so you have a, a lot of political currents, you know, communism being the main one, but fascism almost being being a, a, a alternate kind of parallel dark mirror version of it. Of why can't we achieve either political modernity or economic modernity mm. in a flash? Why can't we just will ourselves to become what Italy? Or, or, or the UK are. If we focus all our efforts top down with a concentrated government on economic development, why can't we you know, achieve in a couple of years what the West has done over a century? If we have a kind of moral transformation of society, a moral nationalist crusade, you have, you have these... Um, movements of crusade for Romanianism, mm-hmm. these kind of fascist movements of, has some of some stuff in Brazil too, but Catholic integrationism of let's transform people's psyches and then we'll transform the whole country through this kind of moral fascist revival. Let's do it all at once. Let's, mm-hmm. let's get out of that old world into some version of the new world. And the templates for what the new world are, are kind of the Soviet Union and, and Nazi Germany or fascist Italy. So they're kind of dark templates. This, this is the 30s. Let's do it all at once. Mm. And after World War II, World War II, the introduction of, of communist rule comes from outside, comes from the Red Army mostly, from Yugoslavia. Mm. But people, I think, need to understand that it's also a social revolution. It's a revolution of who's in charge, which is all of a sudden these, these communists often imported from abroad. Mm. But there's a deep transformation of society that begins after World War II. World War II gets rid of a lot of the diversity, gets rid of the majority of the Jewish uh, population in Eastern Europe. It kills enormous numbers of civilians and soldiers across Eastern Europe. And then you're starting, and it destroys most of the cities, destroys most of the industry. And you're starting from zero. You're starting from scratch in a lot of places. And so even though the political power is in the hands of often outsiders, you are deeply transforming society in ways that are actually kind of popular. Like that's mm-hmm. when serfdom finally ends. I mean, serfdom kind of ends in the 19th century, but the, the people being really tied 
to the land, this real peasant pre-modern economy. This is when people start going to the cities. This is where literacy goes up, electricity, the phone, working in factories, building industry. It all kind of happens in a big leap post-World War II. That you really transform what was societies with little pockets of modernity, little pockets of factory life, little pockets of urban life into dominantly literate urban uh, industrial societies. And it happens very quickly. And then that industry then is all kind of, you know, circa dated early 50s. You know, it doesn't last forever and then it doesn't get updated. And so in the 80s, it all looks like like shit, honestly, it looks terrible. But you do have a deep transformation of society. You have a deep, you have lots of people going from peasant work to factory work. You have people going from factory work into white collar work very quickly in one generation. There's a whole kind of transformation, and, and going from the world of you know never leaving your village, never mm. reading or writing, to urban city life across the region. Huge transformation. Huge social transformation that if you, while while things at the top are kind of static, it's all communist rule, communist rule, communist rule, communist party. Um, I mean, you've seen this in our lifetime mm-hmm. in China in a big way of a rural, I say backwards, but traditional agricultural, very impoverished world transforming into an urban, literate, yeah, industrial yeah. world. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that happens after World War II. Mm. Uh, real quick, uh, before we kind of get to more modern stuff of communism, which you've already been mentioning, is just this kind of question I want to just make sure I, I get, which is, I think when people think of the Holocaust, they only think of Auschwitz, right? As if that was the only place. And people know there's other places, but you talk about in the book that the scale of concentration camps throughout cities and countries and how that was in a lot of Eastern Europe. Could, could you just give us a kind of uh, uh, a kind of yardstick of sorts of like how widespread this was and how uh, it was in Eastern Europe and how much it really was devastating in, 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 in many ways? We're used to looking at the Holocaust through essentially Western European eyes, essentially through like the lens of what happened to, to to France or to Germany, for German Jews, and that things are things are okay for, for a certain amount of time, there are laws, and then there are mass deportations and people get killed in Auschwitz. And there are other camps, but Auschwitz becomes the biggest one. Auschwitz gets the most Jews from Western Europe, too. So that's when we kind of think about it. That's why we have the books from Primo Levi, because that's where Italian Jews get sent. It becomes this, it's the largest. It's only one of a bunch of camps. And, but Eastern Europe is where all the Jews are. Demographically, it has the, the largest concentration, the largest absolute numbers, and it's where most of the killing happens. And so we've kind of used Auschwitz as a metonym for like, well, that's where the Holocaust was, that's what it was. And it's, and it's a huge, you know, killing ground, but it's about, you know, fifth, a fourth, you know, 20, 20% ish of the killing was done in Auschwitz. A lot of it was done at other camps that mostly. Executed like Belgium and Treblinka, the Muslim who executed Eastern European from Polish or, or Polish Ukrainian, Polish Belarusian Jews. The actual process of the Holocaust was much more spread out across the whole 
countryside of Eastern Europe. And the process of it has a lot to do with the war in the, much more to do with the war in the East than any of the West. It has mm -hmm. to do with the dynamics of the war between Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union. It really gets kicked into high gear, what we think of as the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. The actual final solution, the, try, the attempt to get rid of every last Jew in Europe. Mm -hmm. That gets going after Nazi Germany invades the Soviet Union in 41, after they were allies for two years. Mm -hmm. After they signed a non-aggression pact, after they actually partitioned Poland again, so that Eastern Poland becomes, uh, and what's now Western Ukraine, was Eastern Poland back then, becomes part of the Soviet Union. Then Hitler double-crosses Stalin, invades the Soviet Union, wages this war for, for the kind of future of the world in his, his eyes. And that's when you have this universe of killing, where every town, not every town in Eastern Europe, but most of the towns across the kind of that, that Heart, that old Polish Lithuanian heartland of Jewish life, where most Jew Jews live. People are confined in ghettos, confined in, in, in separate quarters of towns. So very small towns, mm -hmm. you know, down to like 20,000, have their ghettos and are funneling people into the countryside, funneling people in those towns. And then a um, month or about a year after the invasion of the Soviet Union, you start executing everyone in those. You, you shoot them. When, when uh, the German army invades after the areas, they'll send in special troops to just execute people in the, in, out in the open. And the problem with that, it's actually just really hard to shoot that many people. It's exhausting. You waste a lot of ammunition. The people who are, you were asked to do it just get sick of it, get fed up with it. They, it's too much of a drama. So the concentration camps are a way of, kind of sparing German manpower, making it more efficient, making it easier. But it's a process that's spread out across the entire cityscape, townscape mm. of Eastern Europe. That each town has its ghetto, and each ghetto gets liquidated in 1942. And then most of that killing on an industrial scale is done in 42, 43. And then you have people on the run hiding for two, three, four more years. Very difficult circumstances where they have to rely on the kindness of strangers, which they often can find for a limited time, for a year, for a few months, well, not often, but sometimes can find. And then the longer the world goes, the harder and harder it is, so the survival rates become extremely small. You have this Holocaust that's happening in the forest, in the woods, people looking for people, like hunting the stragglers, the survivors. Um, it's a real landscape of killing that is, hard to visualize if you don't one have that picture of a of a real mm. you know jewish life being everywhere being mm -hmm. even in tiny villages there's usually a jewish tavern a jewish family but in every town has its like jewish yeah. large section so every town is a site of killing mm -hmm. and a site of witnesses and a site of ghettos and a site of ghetto clearances which means that you come in with troops and get everyone dig a mass grave and, and be shot or dig loaded up on a cattle car. So it's spread out all through the landscape in every town eventually, in every village. Yeah, I I recently rewatched uh, the pianist as a Polanski film, which I mean documents or you know it's a it's a film, but I mean it's based on a true story, I believe. Um that you know details a lot of this stuff. You know, the 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 hiding the running, living in that's in the the Warsaw ghetto, <clears throat> getting split, the 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 um, 
the, the shootings, the kind of executions, the whole thing, everything you just kind of explained. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's a powerful film. I mean, it's. And very close to, to, to the real kind of, mm-hmm. like he, he really went through the Warsaw ghetto. He wrote his book, actually a book, 1949 Polish copy. He wrote right after the war. Mm-hmm. I think it was originally called Robinson Crusoe in Warsaw. We're going to mm-hmm. make a movie of it mm-hmm. because he survives after everyone has been killed yeah. and he's alone in a city of rubble. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but there's that whole process that leads up to that, and and my family's from Warsaw, so they uh they went through the same essentially phases, except most everyone who was in Warsaw, almost everyone who was in Warsaw, didn't survive. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ones who did did so somewhere in the Soviet Union, away mm-hmm. from the front lines. Mm-hmm. And I think Polanski himself was he he as a kid mm-hmm. escaped from 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 going being at a camp or was that a camp or something i don't remember the story he was I, mean, a kid, I think in krakow and uh he yeah. managed to, yeah. to run away and be hidden yeah yeah i mean of course he's he's a complicated person but uh True, he's but, uh, but but yeah his, his story is his origin story yeah. is pretty, pretty is, is, is wild to think that he's i think he's in his 90s now he's still alive but it's crazy to think that he's he's still around and and you know it's it's wild it's, it feels like another time i guess uh, the last two questions here i have is about so you mentioned communism, and a lot of the times people will will think about so like in Romania, you know, communism was prevalent in the eighties and I think in the into the early nineties, and in many of these other countries. And you know, we see you know at different points in different Eastern European countries how they it was dominant, and then it and then it kind of receded, and then you know there's some flirting with it now. I mean, people will will think of Hungary in some ways. Uh, for at least some kind of authoritarian kind of way of doing things, but I guess this this fascination of you're talking about like Eastern Europeans like well why why can't we get to this modernity with all of these different things literacy rates having you know running water electricity all these things and you have communism that for much of Eastern Europe maybe I don't know you tell me I mean but maybe for a bit it it pushed them forward. But it does seem like it held them back in other ways as well. And because when you think about many Eastern European nation states now, we, we mentioned it earlier, you know, I think Moldova is one of the poorest countries in Europe. Um, there's a lot of a lot of places um, in Eastern Europe that have, you know, they're economically not as good. So it, it's it's it seems tough there, right? Because there's after World War II, then you have this, you know, interest with communism, maybe a little bit of fascism. And then it's like, okay, and then you do all that way up to kind of, as we get to the digital or right at the beginnings of the technological age, and it feels like there's a kind of ceiling that hits. And then you have a lot of the states now that have a lot of wonderful and beautiful natural resources and potential, but not quite there. I guess, how do we, how does, does this period with communism and then how does Eastern Europe embrace or not embrace, you know, capitalism and what they're doing with that, you know, currently. And so just, just kind of chat about that from that wave up to, I guess, the present. It's a lot. I'll try to try to, try to be quick. There is yeah. a, um, that it's that, you know, we two cheers for empire, maybe <laughs> one and a half cheers. I'll, I'll give, I'll give one cheer for communism. Not a full cheer, but there is something that it, and some of it is, you know, the the destruction of World War II means mm-hmm. that a different way of life, sure. different way of organizing society, it's literally destroyed because mm-hmm. the cities are destroyed. Uh, 
people are kicked out. But you know, the idea of going back to having having landlords and serfs mm. seems absurd. Yeah. So you can't go so you national you can nationalize land and everyone's kind of for it. It's like, well, we need to redistribute land um, and develop from top down because there's no there's no investment, there's no capital. Everything's you're starting from zero. So the mm. state has to be the biggest investor. Mm. There is a way in which the actual destruction brought by World War II makes you know, forces the state to have the dominant kind of leading role in the economy. There being very little else going on. And there is an achievement. And it's most pronounced in places that are most economically developed before World War II, under, you know, pre-communist rule. In, Czech, in the Czech part of Czechoslovakia, East Germany, they, they had pretty good economies before World War II, and then afterwards they still have pretty high standards of living, and they managed to have a very equitable distribution of resources. You really do, it's GD coefficients, you know, there's a way of measuring mm -hmm. uh, the equality of wages. Some of the, the lowest GD coefficients, which means the most equal kind of societies ever measured are East Germany, Czechoslovakia in the 70s. You're talking really like, you know, people make almost no matter what profession you have, People are making very similar things. The people who make the most are like skilled workers who make a lot more than professors or, you know, doctors, like skilled mine workers will be making more, but everyone's in the same band. Uh, housing is genu genuinely not great, but universal. Childcare is universal. People do look back now. People say, well, that's, you know, the way we, we now face real challenges of, the huge cost of housing and childcare, you look back and like, well, they did kind of get that. But then across the rest of the economy, especially as you get out of that building phase, you're going from total penury to having buildings, having housing, having some kind of factories. You're not completely competitive with the whole world economy, but, but something existing. You're, not, you're getting off of ration cards so that people have mm -hmm. food and a selection of food. At the end of the 70s, actually the 80s, and across the 70s, some countries are, are, are doing okay, but the way you kind of have a false summer, kind of an Indian summer of, of socialism in Eastern Europe, based on a lot of borrowing. Mm. Countries borrow from the West. They borrow money, they spend it on their people, they spend it on improving in different ways, shoring up industry or shoring up life living standards and it works okay and so the gap in like between poland there's a, there is a gap all these countries are poorer than the west mm. but it's not horrible mm -hmm. and then those loans come due and it's a political crisis and then some people make unique decisions like Ceausescu in romania who's like i need to pay off all these loans all at once and i'll just squeeze every last bit of export from my country so that no one can have gas, no one can have food. Everything is for export. In Poland, there's a political crisis, and the wheels come off the economy. And in um, Yugoslavia, there's an inflationary crisis. So the 80s, the, that bill from the 70s gets due, mm. and the living standard, that gap, which was still always present, mm. gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and the economies really fall apart. And then a place like Albania, which is autarkic and almost like, Never good. It becomes just terrible economically. It's really, really desperate because they they almost have no trading partners. 
Mm-hmm. But you have uh, these extremely difficult circumstances with differences across the region, Romania being one of the worst, Poland being really bad. And then with the transition, you know, the transition overall has been pretty good in Eastern Europe. I think I saw something that, that people are forecasting that Poland might overtake the UK in, in total um, in, in GDP in like 2030. I think that's, that's ambitious. But like incredible for, for a big part of Eastern Europe since the transition, since 1990, which is very traumatic and a huge People actually shrank after 1990. Mm. The kind of thing that happens after world wars where people with the whole population, sh- kids are shorter that happened in Eastern Europe. People are on average, the generation that was that was an infant around 89, is a centimeter shorter than the one mm. before that and the one after that. That's how mm. big the trauma was. It's basically people yeah. had worse nutrition, worse living standards, but it's really rebounded. But it's rebounded, how well it's rebounded, how well the transition to cap, capitalism has gone, has depended hugely, mm. one, on some of the social resources, the kind of human capital resources developed by socialism, that literacy, Development of literacy, development of education, development of colleges was a real achievement. But the other one really is the relationship to the EU, the relationship to Germany, the powerhouse of the European economy. Poland does really well because it's a great place for German capital to you know, have cheaper, um, cheaper manufacturing. Hungary has the same thing. It's like you, people just put their warehousing or their factory or their, or their battery production. You know, you can do it within an hour's drive of Germany or Austria, but with much cheaper labor. And that having that almost like kind of Mequiadora system for Eastern Europe has been a tremendous boon to the countries that are on the edge of the, of, uh, of the EU and benefit from having their own currency that actually makes them more flexible, but have this huge market that they can be a part of. And then the part of the EU that, the part of the Eastern Europe that's not in that, whose partners are, whose kind of natural partners are Russia, like Moldova, like Belarus, are, are kind of stuck. It's mm-hmm. kind of they've they've progressed so by comparison so little mm-hmm. since the nineties, and it's a real question of geography and um and and international governance, where you are and what club you're a part of matters so hugely to how capitalism does or doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, uh, it's it's interesting. It's interesting when you when you look at all the history here, and then you get to all of the the rapid changes within you know 100 years, 120 years is 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 really really. We were talking about the Ottoman Empire years, like it was 600 years, and you know whatever, and you have all of these different big 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 ways of doing things. You know, within 60 70 years, it's really really fascinating, and how quickly the world changes. The last question here is is uh, you know people that read your book, what do you want them to to walk away with where you say, yeah, that's, that's kind of what I was trying to say with the book, but you, you, you kind of got the one or two big, big things that I was uh, trying to say with the book. What, what, what is the, the big takeaways that you want people to, to get from it? Well, maybe, maybe let's go to Transylvania for vacation, <laughs> but you know, in a way that that's kind of it is like, let's Eastern Europe, not default to Western Europe. So it's not default to Italy, France, Germany. It's like actually Eastern Europe, different trajectory, mm-hmm. different historical kind of pattern, different society, and incredibly interesting one. 
Mm-hmm. There's almost like too much history. There's this, this long period of history, this incredibly intense experience of the 20th century. Much, almost too much history happening, too little time, too little space, extremely brutal, extremely transformative, multiple transformations. If you want to study how extreme changes in society can happen, you go there. But the idea I want people to come away with is like, this is a rich place. This is a fascinating place. This is a place that is interesting to read about, interesting to study, interesting to get into, to visit, because it has this other texture. The stories, it's not always as polished, but it's more interesting. Mm-hmm. It's more, you know, I, I try to tell the story through a lot of vignettes, through a lot of anecdotes, through a lot of histories of individual people or individual situations, instead of talking about kinds of big political history so that you are not overwhelmed with mm-hmm. presidents and dates and prime ministers right. and kings. It's more individual people like having these crazy, absurd, tragic, sometimes really funny situations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, and that this is a place that's you know, you know, I want people to, to read this book and be like, I, I want to see Albania. I want to read a, mm-hmm. I want to read a Hungarian book. I want to know more about this. And actually, you know, history. When I started the book, mm-hmm. there was a real kind of nadir and attention to Eastern Europe. When I started, like, kind of thinking about this in like, 2013, people were like. Who, who cares? Who's interested? And now it's like, well, actually, maybe the fate of the world depends <laughs> on these differences between Ukrainian and Russian, between between the Moldovan independence as Moldova versus Romania versus Transnistria. These are lynch points of international relations. But I don't want people just to be like, okay, this is this is a place of of conflict. It's also a place of mm-hmm. rich coexistence. Of coexistence kind of betrayed. And of just fascinating culture. I do want people to like, oh, use this to the door and say, you know, this isn't the end. This is I haven't learned everything I want to know. Let's let's learn more. Let's experience more. Not that you travel there. It's actually it's, it's mm-hmm. great to travel. I, I went to 17 countries researching this book. I would have gone to 20 if not for the pandemic. I just shortened my my mm-hmm. I kind of lost a year and a half of travel mm-hmm. trying to make up for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had a tremendous time. I had a terrific time. I've lived in Poland a lot. Mm. For, for a couple of years growing up, I, I, I reported from Hungary. But I really, really hope that people use this book as a stepping stone to deepening their interaction with whatever part of Eastern Europe, whatever part of the Eastern European heritage or history that strikes them as most appealing. Mm. That's what they take away from it. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, the book is called Goodbye, Eastern Europe, An Intimate History of a Divided Land. Uh, this is through uh, Pantheon. Uh, where's the best places to uh, to find yourself, whether that's uh, through an institution or, or online or anywhere else? Any, any good place to find you? I'm on Twitter at Jay McAnowski. Mm-hmm. I'm the only McAnowski in America. So um, usually it's easy to find me. There's there's some French McAnowski, but I'm, I'm the American McAnowski, Jay McAnowski. Mm-hmm. On Twitter, I have a website, Jacob Mikanowski, mm-hmm. uh, that has information about what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And the book is is, is coming out uh, in July. Actually, might be date might be changing from July 18th to July 11th. It's going to be in bookstores everywhere. It's already available uh, online. Your big, big booksellers, and it's uh, it's already out in England. It's already out oh, in Europe. Wonderful. So if you are in the UK, if you have any listeners there, mm-hmm. get there. That's great. That's great. Uh, listen. Jacob, this this conversation was uh, super awesome. 
I had an absolute fantastic time uh, talking about all this stuff in such a conversational way, but so informative. And so you're, you're an absolute delight. Um, I really, really enjoyed this conversation uh, immensely. So I, I can't say enough thanks for, for coming on and, and giving me your time and, and your, your energy and all of your wisdom. So big, big, big thanks. It's been, a, it's been a total blast. Thank you so much for having me on. Of course. Of course. Really.